This is Outspoken, a podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Navarre, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. Our globalized environment sometimes leaves the impression that since we are connected digitally through social media, we therefore automatically understand each other. While social media platforms struggle to contain the ill effects of misunderstanding and misinformation that now spread instantly around the globe, we historians still try to slow things down. We slow down the past and examine it so that we can know it better and can be more confident not only about what happened, but about what it means. As public historians, we acknowledge how important digital communication is, and some of the most innovative work in the field is happening digitally. But we also think critically about ways to engage people in a more traditional spirit of community, a spirit that has not seemed so fashionable or perhaps profitable in this century. Sometimes there's no substitute for what is now quaintly called FaceTime. This year, a group of Fullerton history students participated in a public history project called Langetafel, which involved face-to-face conversations in Fullerton and in Berlin, efforts to increase understanding across cultures. I asked Dr. Cora Granada, Associate Director of the Graf Center, Professor of German History and Leader of Berlin Study Abroad, and her students, Emily Ortiz, Aaron Waldner, and Scott Torres, about their Langetafel experience. Here are Cora Granada and Emily Ortiz. Well, Langtafel is a collaboration that we at the center and I have been cultivating now since 2016. Uh, and uh, it's involved our students and a Berlin-based nonprofit organization called Langtafel which organizes a community event, an open-air community event, um, that brings Berliners, immigrants, anybody together to discuss in a face-to-face dialogue uh, the topics of the day. They set up a langatafel, which is a long table, out in public, and do what is done not enough lately, which is look each other in the eye, and um, discuss in dialogue, in an intergenerational and intercultural dialogue. Often the theme is immigration. This year, the theme that we participated in Berlin was bullying. How do we exclude people? How do we include people? And it brings oral history together with uh, community building. We have staged a long here on campus, and Emily was involved with that. I was part of Dr. Granada's uh, community history class this past spring, and what we were doing our entire class was putting together this event. So as students, we were in charge of placing orders for tables and finding people to interview for this, uh, for this event, and so we did everything. So like I was in charge of, uh, I was part of the team that reached out to people to speak at the event. Uh, we had one girl who ran around town putting up posters. So it was, everybody had a small different little group and 
we worked together to put on this event. So everybody in the class was in charge of interviewing somebody who has immigrated here to Southern California from any part of the world. We ended up having a range, didn't mm -hmm. we? We did. From Peru to Cambodia to Finland to Mexico. It was a wonderful mm -hmm. diversity. And then those narrators came as well to the event, right? Mm -hmm. It was incredible to meet these people because I had done this whole event hearing like people talking about their stories and to actually meet these people was amazing. As you might expect, the Fullerton and Berlin events had entirely different atmospheres. Well, what's nice about when we collaborate in Berlin is that we have the benefit of this existing nonprofit that's based in Berlin, and the director there, Isabella Mamatis, who is the founder of Belangatafel. She's been doing this for over 15 years. So we do a lot of the legwork of the pre-planning that Emily described when it's here locally. When it's in Berlin, she and her organization staff do quite a lot of that. What our students get to participate in there is to be uh, narrators at the long table. So partially that is um, making themselves available to be interviewed by German young people, German participants, the community that is coming there to the event. And for them, it's such a delight to meet American students and hear our perspective. Um, but also interviewers. So we're, we are participants at the long table uh, when we're there. And somebody like Emily gets to then compare how an event like this uh, can be different when it's done with urban density in Berlin, which we don't have necessarily here in Cal State Fullerton. So there's, there's some, I think, I don't know, how, do, how would you say that the event was different, the one that we witnessed? Well, I think, you, I think you nailed it on the head, urban density versus on a campus, because in Berlin, they were just, people were just walking by and joining the table, and you can do that on campus, just not to the extent as a street. So I think that was the biggest difference, was the uh, amount of people flow. Right, yeah. It takes a fair amount of courage to do all this while living in a new country. Students not only learn about the country, but they learn about themselves. Aaron Waldner and Scott Torres described their Berlin experience. I had never done a study abroad. Um, I'm a grad student and I never did it as an undergrad. And so I always regretted that I didn't kind of seize that opportunity. And um, so I didn't have anything really to, I didn't have anything to base this experience on. So I went into it not knowing what to expect. Um, so. It was, um, I, I, there was a lot of surprise, surprises in store. Such as? Getting around Berlin. Um, public transit there is, is wonderful. Um, and, but, uh, you know, it's a different system. And here in California, or in, in the Los Angeles area, most of us don't take public transit. And so it, taking public transit is, is new and um, trying to navigate it in a foreign country, you know, where you don't speak the language was challenging. And so I didn't, I didn't expect to be as um, uncomfortable as, or intimidated as I was at first. It's definitely was one of those things where the more you use it, the more comfortable you get. I had this, this fear that I was gonna get stranded, if I was taking it by myself, that I'd get stranded somewhere and get lost. And, and I, it didn't happen, I didn't get lost. Being a graduate, student and my major is uh, modern Europe 
specifically Germany, so that was it kind of fit. And Dr. Granada, you know, kept encouraging me all semester to, you know, commit to the program, and I did, and it was great. And I probably the best decision I've made academically. And getting to be there in Germany, specifically Berlin, and seeing everything that I've read about and watched movies and read books and saw pictures of from the past, it was really great. It was a surreal experience for me. Um, and like Aaron said, I went kind of without any preconceived notions of how Berlin was going to be. So mm -hmm. when I got there, I didn't know anything. I didn't know where to go. I kind of just went with the flow. and It really took in the experience for what it was. Um, met people from all different walks of life, Germans, you know, people from Australia, people from India, people from the United States as well visiting. So it's a really great experience, really, you know, eye-opening. In a study abroad program, it is always a trick to figure out how much studying to assign. But Dr. Granada found ways to integrate the study with the experience. So the students take two courses. One is a course called Modern Germany from the Third Reich to Contemporary Multiculturalism, which traces 20th century German history and into the 21st century. And really the main theme there is nationalism, um, in various ways, understanding the nature of German nationalism, as, as Scott already raised, but also uh, the excesses. And I think we continue again and again to come to this uh, realization, right, that we are at a moment of, of, a, of, a, of a rise in nationalism globally, mm -hmm. and how much we around the world can learn from, from Germany in that regard. Uh, a related sub-theme of that is also democracy, right, and dictatorship. How do democracies fail? Mm -hmm. The fragility of our institutions. And um, that is also something that we can learn from the Germans about. So that was one course. And we, I thought the discussions that you all made and the conversations that we had connecting the past and the present mm -hmm. were so fantastic yeah. in that class. The other class is a class called German Life and Culture, which is a, 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 an opportunity for us to explore different aspects of German culture, whether it's film, architecture, um, literature, and that's where the students did their group presentations. Mm -hmm. They could choose some aspect of, of, of German culture. Often it was also historical right. and, do, and do group presentations on and um, there ends up being quite a bit of overlap, right? There's cultural history <laughs> as well, but that class also gives an opportunity for us to think about, uh, and a little bit of more creative way to think about what does Germanness mean mm -hmm. in its various ways? How has it changed? Mm -hmm. How is it regional? It's still very, very regional. We, we noticed that when we traveled, when we were in Berlin, it's very different than when you, when you go to Dresden or Munich and understanding the nature of that regionalism as well. So that, I think that class is fun. I gave them an assignment. For example, this week, find something you see that seems particularly German in some way and take a picture of it. Right. Right. <laughs> and we had some great pictures, like somebody reading on the subway, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and it is a country of readers, Landa, Dichter und Denker, the land mm -hmm. of, of poets and thinkers, and, and it is still a reading culture. The book is very important. Erin Waldman. I took a picture of some kids playing a game of pickup soccer on uh, in a park, but not on the grass, like on a on a bas in a basketball court. And that was a common sight in Berlin, was to see kids playing soccer 
in in fields or in parks and so that's what I took a picture of like an action shot of uh, some of the kids playing. As for the Long Toffle itself, it was an experience not to be forgotten. The kids were who in the in this program there, they did the serving. So we were all set up at like a long row of like card tables with folding chairs and, and on a street uh, in a Berlin neighborhood and the street had been shut down to, to traffic, to vehicle traffic. So we're all sitting at these tables and the kids look to be early junior high or yeah, late elementary sixth school, grade. sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And they went along on like, a, on like a cart and were serving up plates of spaghetti and um, adding cheese if you wanted it and stuff like that. And so um, that was really neat to see them kind of manning the tables and and taking charge. And they did a great job of interacting with everybody. I think the spaghetti there. really drew people in from the outside, too. Yeah. I'd see people riding bikes. They'd stop and look like, oh, I want some spaghetti. And they'd come <laughs> and eat with us. Like, well, what's this event? And that's what sparked up more and more conversation with passerbys. So it was really great to hear. You know, I would give them my story. They would give me theirs. And it was a good experience to talk to people that mm-hmm. I would never even have a conversation with over spaghetti. We were in a, it was um, we were in the neighborhood where the school is located, and it's a it's um, it struck me as a as a real diverse ethnically diverse community. Um, across from me was an African restaurant. Then there was a gelato place up the street. We, I passed um, a Mexican restaurant, and uh, and so that was kind of a neat environment to see all these different people together. Yeah, the neighborhood is called Kreuzberg, which is known to have one of the largest Turkish-German populations, and a lot of the kids came from that background, too, in the, in the school that we were working with for the Leibniz Gymnasium. You know, Long Otafel, at least, my impression was that this particular, um, it celebrates, at least in part, immigration. Mm-hmm. And um, and so here we are learning about nationalism, not just in Germany, but thinking about it in America as well, in other countries. And so against that backdrop, we go to this event that was celebrating diversity. And to me, that struck me. Our historians were used to being the ones asking the questions. But in this Langatafel conversation, the tables were turned and they found themselves sharing their own experiences. It added up to a rich encounter and the highlight of the trip, as Emily Scott and Aaron recall. That was very different. I was used to being the interviewer, not the interviewee. So to have it turned around on me by little children, it was school children doing all the interviews. It was very interesting. So their topic was bullying. So we got questions like, have you ever been bullied? Have you ever been a bully? How do you handle this bullying? And so they came up with great questions. Um, It was amazing because of the language barrier. I don't speak any German. They barely spoke any English, but trying to cross this language barrier to discuss this very serious topic, it was amazing that we were able to do it and actually have a fairly good conversation with each other. Um, one of the things I took away, I think, was that um, I, I, I would hope that, and, and I, I think we, um, it happened, was that our group of American students perhaps showed these children um, we, um, that we don't fit the, maybe what they have of the American stereotype, especially now what they think, maybe what they think of Americans, that we don't, not all Americans um, 
are like that. And so maybe we help break down some stereotypes. And just like us meeting Berliners and, and uh, Germans, that we learned that stereotypes don't, you know, they don't, people don't always meet our expectations. That, you know, sometimes the stereotypes are just that, stereotypes. So there was some prepared questions if you wanted to start striking up conversation with people. And uh, one of them was like, hey, have you ever been a black sheep? Mm. And, or have you been bullied? And I answered both those questions. Um, they said, hey, you know, you look like a, you know, a big, strong, you know, American guy. Have you been bullied before? And I was like, yeah, I have. I, I was bullied um, in junior high school. I was always the smallest kid growing up. And, you know, the bigger kids would take advantage and bully me. And uh, I started high school and I joined the high school wrestling team. And there was kids in my own weight class that, you know, we could wrestle together. And then it gave me a real sense of confidence and empowerment to not let people push me around anymore. I never had really gotten physical with anybody except for, you know, in, at a wrestling meet or things like that. But it really gave me a, a sense of self-confidence to walk around knowing that n no one's going to bully me anymore. Um, and then the black sheep question, which was really cool. Uh, I was the only one in my family who didn't go a traditional college route. Um, I joined the Navy instead right out of high school. And it kind of didn't really go well with my parents because it was post 9-11, maybe a year and a half after 9-11 happened, and uh, I went and joined the military and went just to go put myself in danger in a lot of people's eyes. But I think that was a really good decision as well. So I was kind of black sheep for a little bit there. But I told them, you know, all these, all these struggles in life, if you can get past them, you know, it makes you a better person. It makes for a good story that you can tell later to other people. So those are some, some of the questions that were asked of me. Well, what I took away from it, from the Loma Tafel event, was that um, talking about serious issues like bullying is really important when you start at an early age. That, yes, they're children, but they're dealing with these serious issues that remain serious even when you become an adult, because adults can be bullied. And I think we forget that as we get older, that adults can be bullied. We think of that as just a child thing. We don't notice it as you know, different political parties bullying each other. We don't see it as, you know, different countries bullying each other. We just think of it as a child thing. So I think being able to talk about it with adults and children and be able to share this information was really important for this day and age. Specifically at Langatafel, it's, for me, it's very important to embrace diversity and really accept people for who they are um, and what they can offer you know the community or the world or you know even even their family right we all bring different things to the table and I think that we we can all think in one collective we can do really great things it doesn't matter if a person's from Turkey or if a person's from Germany or the United States or wherever I think we can all put our minds together and work work you know towards a better place so I think more platforms like Langatoff will do, will do the world a good service. All of this and foreign travel too. There's nothing like leaving one's own country to get perspective that can't be found any other way, as Scott, Emily, and Aaron confirmed. Getting to see how people live and conduct themselves day to day compared to living here in the suburbs in Orange County is far different. and. 
there may not have been as many comforts of home in Berlin, but it was just people found a way to be outside and enjoy life. And uh, they, they seem a little more happy as far as being active and outside and uh, communal with other people. Here, we, you know, we get in our car, drive to work, or drive to school, and come home and put Netflix on and then repeat it day after day. <laughs> you know, if you have another, like, activity you do, maybe that's included in that, but that's, you know, it's pretty much a, it's the way it goes. But getting out and seeing other people outside all the time is really great. Yeah, I think Scott's right. The biggest difference I saw between how I grew up and how living in Germany was was community. Um, you know, driving a car to work versus a train. You're with people all the time. You're with a community. And I feel like we were a lot more active with the city life and everything as we were in Berlin, just walking down to, you know, a restaurant and talking with the waitress and locals. And I don't know, I think that was a very big difference from how I grew up, at least was the city life. It, it struck me while I was there, and I thought about this since, since I've gotten home, about um, how difficult it is to be a foreigner um, in another country. Um, it's, it can be so hard navigating public transit when you don't um, read the language or you don't speak the language, trying to manage currency. Um, and you know, just your day-to-day -day life is just is, is much harder. By the end of the program, I was sad about leaving, but at the same time, I remember saying, "I'm ready to come home. I'm ready for it to stop being so hard." And um, I just I I think it really the program programs like this gives um, kind of um, maybe um, gives us more empathy for the immigrant experience and just what immigrants face every day that maybe a native-born doesn't realize. None of this escaped the professor's eye. I saw just the immense amount of growth, right? I mean, I, you know, I invited these three here to come and, and speak, but just all three of them, you know, the, from the beginning of the program to the end of the program, the, the development and growth that I saw, uh, in, in just the comfort level of, of navigating a new place, but also appreciating the community, the community you developed among yourselves, but also your willingness to engage with this foreign community for you in Berlin. Scott, you know, Scott talked about wrestling. Scott joined a, um, what, a jiu-jitsu gym? Yes, yes, yes I, uh, I... When we were in Berlin yeah. and, and developed his own community there, right? I mean, to me, that's a model of what you do as a... You know, you, you go abroad and you put yourself out there. He's being modest, but, you know, he had his own little world there where he made friends with these other Berliners who threw his hobby. Yeah. And I was so proud of that. And Emily, who came to me never having gone anywhere abroad, very rarely even leaving Orange County. And by the end, she was an expert. And Aaron, too, you talked about your nervousness about getting lost. I remember the first time we had to get to class and you were so scared. And by the yes. end... She was, you know, going to museums and places that were off the list that she wanted to go and see. And so, um, you know, the Langetafel event for me, part of what I instruct the students is when we go there, don't just sit with each other. Don't sit across from somebody in our group. In fact, we spread ourselves out. 
where they were sitting on one side of the table, which forced somebody else mm-hmm. to sit across from them. You know, because one of the, I think, risks sometimes of study abroad is the students just um, focus on one another because of their anxiety about getting out. And so that event, you know, really was structured to make them interact with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And they were they were great at doing that. And I would walk around, yeah, you're sitting across from someone you know, you know, and separate them. And they and they did that. These students acknowledge that as historians, they perhaps have an extra incentive to see other parts of the world. And they have a reservoir of background knowledge that helps ease the anxieties of travel. But for any student, this is an expensive and daunting undertaking. Why do it? I would say to them that, you know, no matter how expensive it is or if you don't see a way that you can get there there's always somebody willing to help you in this organization this, you know this university wants students to succeed and if you do the right things you you write you know you ask the right people for help they're going to help you get there and you know just ignore all those little voices of anxiety in your head saying that you know I can't go because of this or I can't go because I don't speak that particular language that's the last thing that should stop you from going abroad and really experiencing a different culture and um, the things that you've learned about. You know, you're actually going to go live it for that, you know, five weeks or a semester long or something like that. I would totally encourage anybody to go. It was a great experience. Um, Yes, money is an issue, but the financial aid was super helpful, uh, in my case at least. And I had a lot of help from my advisors, uh, fellow students. Everybody really encouraged me to get out there. As Dr. Ganana said, I've never really left California. I think the furthest I've ever been is Kentucky. Uh, I've never really flown on a plane before. I didn't know the language. And I still went, and I made lots of mistakes. (laughs) I bought bread I do not like, but I made a big mistake on that. (laughs) Uh, And I still went, and I still put myself out there, and it was very awkward at some points when, you know, I don't, I can't speak the language, and there's a language barrier there, but being able to get past that and experience the city and everything I learned in history and of the culture, it was completely worth it. Some of us were, were history students, are history students who went in the program, but the there we that it was a diverse group. We had business majors, I think there was a psychology major. So you don't have to just be a history major to go on one of these um, study abroad programs. Um, so if that's holding someone back, I, I wouldn't let it. And also I would encourage um, undergrads or grads if, um, to do it if they, um, when they're young. Take advantage of that, of that window before they're married, before they have kids, before they have a career. All those things make, can make it a little bit more difficult to, to do a program like this. So I would, enc- I would encourage them to um, take advantage of, that, of their youth to go, to go out there and, and explore the world. I tell them that it can change their life. And it, that is not an exaggeration. It changed my life. I was a sophomore in college when I did my first study abroad as well, which was in Berlin. And it, it 
put my life on the trajectory that has taken me today to be a German historian. But more than that, I mean, yes, it, it put me on that professional path, but it, but it also gave me so much more self-confidence, as these students are describing, to, to go through an experience of discomfort and come out of it knowing, wow, I can handle this. And other things then in life didn't seem quite as complicated after I had solved some of those issues. So I do really stress that it is life-changing. It can be costly, right? But I think our students have all pointed out that there's support. Actually, both. I know Scott, you received the Black Family Fellowship, which, yeah. which was really supportive, and yeah. you received some scholarships from the from the College of Humanities and Social mm -hmm. Sciences as I did. well. So there, we we offer ways to help you financially, mm -hmm. if you want to go and you want to commit and you apply. There are ways to get support. So I, I stress that for students as well. And now let's listen to archivist Natalie Navarre as she introduces oral history clips on the immigrant experience. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre Garcia, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. Throughout this segment, we'll be listening to clips of oral histories and our Hitler's Europe to the Golden State Project. The oral histories in this project focus on the experiences of European Americans who came to California during or after Second World War. Barbara Vigano was born in Germany in 1938. After World War II, her family moved to Switzerland where she finished high school. Later, after she was married, she lived in Italy and Holland for her husband's work before finally settling in Southern California in 1975. In this clip, she discusses the challenges of moving to a new country. It's a big challenge. Moving to a country when you don't speak the language, when you don't know the culture, is a big challenge. Um, because I've always been interested in languages, immediately I started taking lessons in order to be able to handle the new language, at least, if not the new culture. So um, I started speaking Italian very quickly, and I took language. I took classes also in Holland. In Holland, it's not really necessary to take classes of Dutch because the, the Holland is a very small country and a very international oriented country. Everybody speaks English in Holland. Um, they don't. Uh, they don't like to speak German, although Dutch and, and German are very close linguistically. They don't like to speak German because they still resent the German occupation during World War II. But you can do anything you want with English. Um, the only person who didn't speak any German or English was the young woman who gave me tennis lessons. She only spoke Dutch. But there was no problem, you know, I could because I spoke German, I could handle Dutch very quickly. Understand, not not necessarily not necessarily speak, but I've always liked language, so I made always the biggest effort to adapt as fast as I could. 
I have never, I have known um, Americans in Germany when we were living in Germany as, as foreign assignment. I knew Americans who couldn't handle the German toilet paper, imported to toilet paper from the United States. They couldn't, uh, they didn't like the German meat, they imported meat from the United States. They imported coffee from the United States. There are some people who do not adapt well. But I was not one of them. Like Barbara Vagano, Hans Tiep also immigrated to a new country after the war. Here, he describes his first months living in Canada. You don't think about adjusting, you just do it. Because mm -hmm. the options are slim. First of all, you have to learn English. Um, the way I solved the problem, in those days, you could in Canada, you could get into a movie for 10 or 15 cents. So every, on my way home from work, I went to see a movie. And if possible, I saw the same movie over and over and over and over again. And uh, after a while, I understood a little bit what was going on, and uh, and it, it, you, language was the uh, the foremost thing you had to adjust to. Um, because at the work place where I worked, they called me yes yes, because I never said no. And they asked me, can you do this? Can you do this? I always said yes because I thought. Saying no wouldn't get me anywhere, but uh, it worked. And after six, five, six months, I uh, I spoke enough English to get along. And uh, other adjustments, I don't know. I was busy. I was nineteen years old. I was busy staying alive and making it on my own. Mm -hmm. I had no support from any, from any source, so I was busy. Mm -hmm. best, best way to adjust, staying busy. Bern Kammer's family came to America in 1952. He recalls his youth spent in North Hollywood and what life was like for a young German boy with a family who, while still proud to be German, quickly found their appreciation of the nation they now called home. You know, we assimilated pretty well, but initially, we would hang out with other German families. Um, this was in the uh, mid-1950s, and I remember a park, I think it was in La Crescente area, and it was called Hindenburg Park. And this was in the city of Los Angeles, and this park had statues of, you know, the, of the of famous Germans, of, of composers, of political figures, Hindenburg and so on. No Nazis, but uh, and they had uh, they had a uh, they had a pavilion, a big dance pavilion, and the the Germans would get together there on weekends and would party, and they had bands playing and all that, and of course they had a lot of beer, and us boys, you know, we we were allowed to drink beer because we were among Germans, and Germans drink beer, you know, so uh, that was kind of fun. Um, so while they assimilated, they also stayed together. But the thing that my parents did is they were insistent on us learning English. In fact, when we got to Iowa, my dad said, okay, we are now in America. 
there'll be no more German spoken in this house. I remember him saying that. Well, that's insane. You know, if we want to, <laughs> how do we communicate, right? But the, the point was, we were going to learn, learn the language. When we got to North Hollywood, my parents went to a, a school to learn, um, to learn American history so they could become citizens, so they could pass the citizenship test. And the very first opportunity they had to take the test, they took it to become citizens and, and to vote. And, you know, and they were really felt really strong about that. Um, so, and, uh, and, and so did I, you know, I, I, but I chose to, I could have become a citizen under my parents' umbrella, but I chose to do it on my own. And, um, but anyway, that's, um, that's, you know, so they were, while they wanted to become Americans, they, they still kind of held on to their, their German heritage a little bit. Adjusting to a new place can be difficult, but for Barbara Vigano, California always seemed to be a kind of paradise. The perception that everybody else has in the world has. El Dorado, you know, eternal sunshine and, and mountains with snow and the, the sea with no beautiful beaches. Very, very positive uh, opinion or idea, you know, without having seen it. Um, and that continues all over the world. I have taught French and German for basically all my life. And I always used to say to the students, don't say you're American when you're asked where you're from. Say you're Californian, you're from California. Wow. And that continues. That is still true today. Americans, if you say you're American, they're liable to be nasty. They, the, the Americans are not liked all over the world, not in Europe and not in the Far East because of American politics and American Puritanism, you know, American do not have a good reputation. But if you say you're Californian, it's like opening a sesame, you know, a door. Um, California is still considered and envied all over the world. So what, do you, what did you think about California once you arrived? I loved it. I knew that the children who were, how old were they? 11 and 9 or something like that. Um, I knew that they would want to go to Disneyland. You know, everybody's heard about Disneyland. And I dreaded it. Oh my goodness, I have to take them, you know, go to the children, to Disneyland with the children. And then when we went, I loved it. I said, well, this is neat. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, basically, I loved everything about it. We went skiing in Mammoth, and we went to the, the picnics on the beach. We loved our house. We loved our neighborhood. El Dorado. <laughs> For Beate Baker, a native-born Austrian woman, immigrating to California was even better than she imagined. It was better than what I expected. Oh, especially at this time. 19, just think, in 1964, in L.A., in California. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Oh, small. Los Angeles was small. Uh, my big thing was transportation. New York, streetcars, trains, people got a bicycle. Uh, 
cars were not necessary. Uh, cars were a luxury. And of course, being California, not having a car, that wasn't the first. Huh? How do I get? How do I get to the airport when I have to go flying? But stayed in a complex where a lot of stewardesses lived, and it was really close. You could take a cab and go to work. Our last clip is from Hester Dove. Dove grew up in the United Kingdom and later moved to the United States after marrying an American GI. Here, she describes the influence European immigrants have had on the country. Well, I think the little pockets of us that there are uh, around the state or around the country have helped the country to grow tremendously. Uh, I think the nationalities that came, the Irish and everybody else that came into New York, I, I think they were, I had that, I think they had ethics even if they were not educated. They um, had standards that they brought with them. Um, I know a lot of them lived in slums and it was very hard and everything else, but I think they brought a standardized uplift with them okay. of a new life. Mm -hmm. Cause it was, and they made it into a new life. Mm -hmm. They built the country. I hope you enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have over 6,000 oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. And that's Outspoken, episode 16. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Cora Granada, and her students, Emily Ortiz, Aaron Waldner, and Scott Torres. For archivist Natalie Navarre and producer Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothrow.